Hey guys, this is Nick Raven, reporter here at Colorado Springs Independent, and you're listening to Hot Takes and Streaming Breaks, a bi-weekly show about pop culture and national stuff and uh, things just going on in the world, just kind of in tech, music, games, whatever, movies. We do that stuff too. How you doing? It's um, the, the earliest of you are probably listening to this on Tuesday morning, but it may be Tuesday afternoon. Uh, or Wednesday, maybe it's Thursday or the whole weekend uh, that you're listening to this, whatever the case may be. Uh, thank you for listening. We're going to do a, a solo cast today. Kelly was unfortunately not able to make it. Uh, we were going to do a um, retrospective on the Clerks trilogy. We may, we'll probably do that next time around. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, so this is going to be an all news week. We did an actual episode three two weeks ago, but because of a blunder on my part mm-hmm. uh, that did not go through, which was great, uh, really soul-crushing and not amusing in the slightest. But we can laugh at it now. Well, we can laugh and cry about it now. That's pretty great. Ugh. Uh, whatever. Uh, but we're going to go through some news here, um, some of the most recent developments uh, kind of around the world. I'm going to talk about some stuff I've been listening to, stuff I've been playing but to give you a sample of what's going on, uh, our first news item – well, let's, actually, let's just get into the news. Okay, so for this week's Event Horizon, uh, if you're listening, reading the uh, Color Springs Independent – uh, I got to talk with Benjamin M. Weilert and Lena Johnson. They are the uh, municipal liaisons or MLs for NaNoWriMo. Now, if you have author, nerdy writer friends, you've probably heard of this. This is National Novel Writing Month. And based on – I'm looking at the calendar here. Um, I, you might still you, – you can participate at any time. This starts – Okay. This episode goes live November 1, so you have plenty of time. What it is is it's a challenge to write a 50,000-word novel or whatever you want to do um, within 30 days. So that means you have to write 1,667 words every single day, more or less, uh, for 30 days. And the goal is to generate a book or generate short stories or generate something or write part uh, of a book. I dive into this a bit more with my interview with them. Last week, or I guess this week, gosh, this week like, feels like forever. My goodness, what a week. How are you guys doing with that week thing? It's just like it just if it, this week felt like two or three weeks. My goodness. But um, you have a chance to still hop on. Uh, there is an actual website, nanorimo.org. That's N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O. And I'll put it in the show notes too. But this is the site where you can actually go in, you can register, you can put in your uh, progress based on number of words, uh, throw that in there. Uh, I'm looking at my results from 2016. I got 10,752 words in and then abruptly stopped. So that's pretty great. They got a bunch of different uh, badges you can get for making progress. They also have community uh, there because the local NaNoWriMo group is having a kickoff event at Rockrimmon Library. It's it's actually too late to. I think it's actually tonight. Yeah, uh, but uh, they they'll have a 
thank God it's over party when it's over. Uh, and you can still attend that, but it's basically a set of message boards and stuff to get you participating. Like it's a support group, it's pep talks, it's all this fun stuff that you, you probably want. Um, it is really helpful to get writing a 50,000 word novel and talking with them. There were a lot of people who are not novelists. I mean, you have the, the novelist hobbyists or, you know, the people who write full time. Uh, but for in this case, this is something that, hey, if you haven't written before or if you have a concept for a book or a novel or whatever, you can use this as an accelerant to then write your book. And uh, you can do this all on your own. It's kind of like when you're running a marathon, which I know a bunch of people know how to do and have done, but you can write, you can run a, a marathon around your neighborhood if you want. It's just 26.2 miles, but it's when you attend an event, that's when it feels like official because then people know your official results and, and whatever. And in this case, NaNoWriMo is kind of the same. You can do write a 50,000 word uh, story or just write 50,000 words over a month. But you know, this way you just, you just, there's community there. Uh, they've got forms and all that fun stuff. So go check that out. Uh, really excited. I've done it a couple times. I've only finished, I've finished, I've, I've, I think I've done like three or four. I want to say four. I've completed it once on time and I completed it a, s- a second time, but after the fact, so it doesn't really count, but whatever. It's, it's, it's like, it's low stakes. It's not a big deal. You're not getting a medal or anything or winning a prize for that. You just, now you have 50,000 words of a book. You probably been sitting in your head for a while. So uh, if you are in the inclination at all to start writing, I would highly go check it out. Um, and if you've got some time, like, hey, just, just jot away a few words. Uh, maybe you've got an outline that you've been working on for a while. And uh, just start writing. So NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month. Go check it out. I'll, like I said, I'll have uh, links in the description. Uh, next item I'm here on the news, if, if this thing will let me do that. Uh, just yesterday, I came. This is just yesterday. Elon Musk completes forty-four billion dollar deal to own Twitter. I'm reading from the New York Times here. Uh, after months of waffling, lawsuits, verbal mudslinging, and the near miss of a full-blown trial, Elon Musk now owns Twitter. Uh, he went into Twitter HQ yesterday with a kitchen sink, like some kind of like weird joke. Cool. Uh, he said that he wouldn't fire 75% of everyone there, which is, you know, what you say before you walk into their headquarters, um, which he had threatened. He, he's been back and forth for months uh, on this. And if you don't use Twitter, like I kind of use Twitter. When I started using Twitter, this was 2008. And they'd already been in operation for like a year or something like that. I only signed up for Twitter because I wanted – to text a service to then update a widget on my MySpace page. Yeah, I, I wanted – because there, were, there was no – okay, 2008, right? This is before there were apps. Most people were still using dumb feature phones, flip phones, stuff like that. I had a flip phone. But with this, you could send – tech you you originally i mean that's why the uh twitter original character limit was 140 characters 
is because it was fitting inside a text envelope. So you could text in envelope, text in envelopes, text in updates, text in tweets um, to the service, and then it would update on their page. Or in the case of this widget, you could update that. And for some reason, I didn't actually end up using it because it wasn't it wasn't like updating to the latest one, something like that. It wasn't a very good widget. But also, I mean, it was the early days, MySpace. Come on now. But uh, um, I was initially, I was initially interested in the service. Uh, I would tweet. I tweeted a lot in those first couple years, and what I would also do is that silly thing where I was, um, it was forwarding those updates to Facebook, so I couldn't get the full multimedia capabilities on Facebook from the tweets, and then it just, I, w- I was, it was like a really real stream of consciousness thing. I was using tweet Twitter as to, to just broadcast whatever I was thinking of at that time or whatever I was doing. And at the time it seemed really cool. Like it was like a live journal um, without the live journal. I could just, whatever I was thinking, go from there. And that was, it was neat then. But then over time, as the service got bigger, I just felt like I didn't have as much a connection to people because the celebrities were getting on and it's like, with just an, it felt like the the closest way to be able to talk to people. And I remember I would be able to tweet stuff and then random people would be able to reply uh, because this was, as I understand it, kind of like pre-algorithm days or the algorithm wasn't as strong. So you could just f- find random people. And uh, after 2010, it just ramped up dramatically. So I have a kind of, I don't know, inactive relationship with Twitter. I don't think it's the greatest. Definitely not. But apparently Elon Musk did. <laughs> so he went in ahead and bought it because he, he claimed that he wanted to um, make it a freer platform. He wanted to open source the algorithm. And um, he's only 51 years old. My gosh. Yeah. Uh, he decided, hey, I'm the richest man in the world. I'm going to go buy Twitter. Why not? That's what you do on a Tuesday. That's what you're doing on a Tuesday. You're thinking about, man, if I could buy Meta, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but if I could buy Meta, I would totally turn it into a theme park. That's that's what he that's what he said. Um, but Elon Musk set out, and he set out to buy the platform, but then he was like, Oh, I don't know if you guys are accurately reporting how many spam bots are on there because with any social network, there are a bunch of bots, just software based people, um, or rather not people who are using the service and just plugging and spamming. And I mean, if you've used the internet before or email or anything like that, chances are you've encountered a bot. And so he's, he was like, no, I'm not going to do it now. Um, and of course you can talk a whole bunch about Musk rushing into something and trying to manipulate the price based on whatever news that he's trying to um, pursue or create. Like he's creating this very performative stuff, these very performative acts uh, in order to hype up something. I mean, he did the same thing with crypto when Tesla bought a whole bunch of crypto a couple of years back, you know, pump and dump. Um, He's been in trouble with the SEC about this stuff. And he kind of laughs it off like they don't know what they're doing. So Elon Musk now owns Twitter. And then the question becomes, well, when is he going to bring back permanently banned people like Donald Trump? Um, When's it going to become basically – he said it wouldn't – he told the salespeople there that it wouldn't become this 
hellscape, uh, essentially. Uh, let's see. Mr. This again, the New York Times. Mr. Musk, a self-described free speech absolutist, has said he wants to make the social media platform a more freewheeling place for all types of commentary, and that he would reverse the permanent ban of former President Donald J. Trump from the service. Uh, which sounds really dangerous, uh, considering all the stuff that he has perpetuated, uh, and we could go on a whole other thing like that, but. Twitter has – I mean let's be fair here. Twitter has not been the best at deciding who stays on the platform and who doesn't. Their judgment has been inconsistent and worthy of criticism. Uh, but that said, it took them long enough to ban Donald Trump and the idea of them bringing him back seems a little scary for all of the people that then enables. Um, and also you have to hear from Donald Trump like – just scary. So I personally don't have a stake in what's going on with, you know, this thing, essentially. Um, it's a little scary that such a powerful platform would fall under basically one person's purview. And that's something we're seeing. I can't, I can't recall. Um, there was an article about a recent, I can't recall the origin, uh, but it, it was essentially billionaires are now it was in regards to Kanye buying Parler uh, a few – guess it was a couple of weeks last week. Basically, he billionaires buying social networks to create their own echo chambers and um, it's tragic. It, it really is that you'd have these people who have enough resources, enough wealth, enough power to then be able to go, um, I'm going to create this vehicle or in the case of Elon Musk, I'm going to – co-opt this vehicle, take it over, bring it private. Um, and it's going to be a platform for whatever he wants, whatever Elon Musk is interested in. And he can pilot that way. Now, does he risk alienating his entire audience this way? Sure. Yeah. I mean, he's got two businesses. They're doing pretty okay. It helps if you're rich to start. <laughs> I certainly... Certainly helps, but uh, it's kind of a wait and see thing. Um, I'm not full red klaxons blaring at this point, but it does seem it. It it's, it's, seems kind of frightening. It seems like it'd absolutely be uh, frightening what could come of that because, despite Twitter's structural issues, its flaws, this and that, it's still there. It's still very powerful. It's powerful and relevant in areas, you know, throughout the, like the Middle East where um, speech, free speech is very, very limited compared to here. And Twitter is what you have. Um, that was Twitter was a big component of the Arab Spring about a decade ago uh, because people were able to use that to, to talk to people. And I'm not saying that that's going to go away, but it's uh, it's also like how much could it pollute discourse here in North America? So uh, I guess we're going to stay tuned on that. All right, let's move on to the next item here. We're going to talk about Star Wars Andor. This is the new Disney Plus series. It is going to be a two-season run, and uh, they're split. There are 12 episodes each. And uh, 
this is the stay, the stay. This is the stay. This is the story of Cassie and Andor, who was the spy protagonist of the movie Rogue One. Now, if you're a huge, huge, just absolutely massive hot takes and streaming breaks fan, you've listened to our last episode from a month and a half ago, where we talked about Rogue One. Uh, this is the, that had been the first time that I seen that in a while. Kelly was here. He was able to talk to it because he'd seen it a couple times. Uh, go listen to that episode. But this is the protagonist from that show. It's a prequel series because obviously he dies at the end of Rogue One. Spoilers. But this is this is a show kind of showing his rise, how he became a traitor, how he joined the Rebel Alliance, stuff like that. The big thing about this show, uh, this is written – um, and some of these episodes are directed and produced, definitely some of them directed, but uh, produced by Tony Gilroy, uh, known for his kind of in-depth dramatic screenplays. This is this is a story for adults. And um, Star Wars has traditionally been known for how easy it is to get into. Um, it's, it's very whimsical. It's bright, kind of like not quite cartoonish, but... It's it, it is it's super interesting, super easy to get into. It's really th- like theme park fodder, and this is something. I mean, obviously, it's hard to get in if you've never seen Star Wars before. It's hard to get into like Episode Two or even Episode Eight, you know, The Last Jedi, and just kind of watch it. But the show as a whole, or the franchise as a whole, is known for just how uh, approachable it is, and so it's. Kind of then – see, I grew up on LucasArts games. So Dark Forces, TIE Fighter, the stuff that would – there was a little more in-depth. The stuff that required a little bit more reflection kind of di- demonstrated that there was more lore there essentially. And so there are people who live and abide by just the movies uh, and they've been making a lot of movies. But this is a show that dives deep. It is mature. Um, it is not a show where it's spelling every single thing out for you. It's subtle. Um, the dialogue is very, very good. It's in, it's incredible. The performances are amazing. And up to the leading up to act episode six, which is the farthest I've seen, they're up to episode eight now. So I got to catch up. Everything leading up to episode six and then episode six itself is such an incredible chunk of Star Wars that I've never seen before. I don't think anyone's seen before. And some, you know, some kind of, um, some have commented about how the first couple episodes are kind of slow to get into. Uh, and like, I get it, but it's also, they're, they're building towards something. It's like they, Andor never felt boring to me. It never felt slow. It never felt like it was taking its time, except in preparation of good things. Um, you can, you you can really. Th- this is again. This is a very mature themed. It's not violent. I mean, there's violence in it, of course, but it's not gory. It's not an M-rated show. It is a. You have to be paying attention. You have to be thinking about it, and it's in that way that it. It's in how it's respectful to the audience and not insulting its intelligence. It reminds me a lot of the Batman animated series, the one I grew up with um, by uh, uh, Bruce Timm. And um, I'm going to look this up right now. 
Bruce Tim and Paul Dini. Uh, yes, yes, I think you got it. But it, it Bruce Tim, Paul Dini. Yeah, there we go. And Mitch Bryan. There we go. Uh, but the Batman animated series was was it was a cartoon, right? But it was a show that, and it was a show targeted for kids. But when you watch it, and when you even watch the uh, Mask of the Phantasm, which was their feature um, film, that was a show. That was a cartoon that respected that you as a kid are probably not going to understand what's going on here, but you will. And it it it, what, it didn't dumb things down. It didn't sugar it up. And Andor really feels like that for Star Wars. And this is the best. I this may be the best Star Wars linear entertainment non video game that I've ever seen. Uh, I'm really excited for where this goes. This first season is supposed to be the first year of his career. Essentially, it's a five year arc. Uh, leading up to Rogue One and when he dies. And so the first season is the first year. And then the la- the second season will be the compressed four years while he's apparently working with the uh, Rebel Alliance. So I would highly recommend that you give Andor a shot. Uh, if you have not uh, – if you're in it maybe an episode or two, keep going. Uh, if you're somehow not feeling – I would say keep going. Uh, because it it pays off so well. It is among, again, just incredible. And this is not just Star Wars. It's just like any entertainment whatsoever. Just giving Tony Gilroy the latitude, the freedom to basically do this. Because uh, he sat down in an interview with Mark Marin uh, of the uh, WTF podcast. And he basically, uh, Gilroy basically said, hey – I want to do this with this Andor because Tony Gilroy did a rewrite of Rogue One after that movie went into issue had issues, and he he Kathleen Kennedy who runs Lucasfilm was like, well, let's do this, and Gilroy said, no, let's do this, and it was so much bigger, so much bigger, so much bigger, uh, and they're like, uh, no, we're going to do what we want, and it sat for a while. And as streaming started to pick up, as Disney started putting millions and millions and millions more into streaming and shows and stuff like that, that's when they came back to go and it's like, all right, we'll do it your way. And this is his way. And it is just beautiful, beautiful. Go check it out. I'm going to get a drink here. So go check out Andor. Do it. Go do it. It's incredible. All right, moving on. What do we got? Uh, let me move this around. We're going to kind of jump between topics here. Uh, This is from NPR. Facebook parent Meta is having a no good, horrible day after dismal earnings report. Um, So far this year, Meta's stock has fallen by about 70%. It's now worth about $270 billion, roughly a third of its market capitalization of just under $900 billion a year year ago. Uh, This may be hard to believe, but a year ago, basically today, was Meta's announcement that they were going to be meta. It used to be called Facebook. Facebook runs Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, a couple others. And uh, a couple years ago, almost a decade ago, they bought Oculus, who was who had crowdfunded a VR headset. Uh, this was Palmer Lucky's company. And they 
And everyone was kind of curious, like, what, what does Mark Zuckerberg, who's the CEO of Facebook, what in the world does he want making VR headsets? That doesn't make any sense, right? You think Facebook, okay, you go on Facebook and you see memes and you see your aunt reminiscing about some field trip that they went on, vacation they went on to Utah. Uh, you see baby pictures, you see yourself getting old and all of your friends getting old alongside you. Anyway, um, it's, what are you going to do? What is Facebook? What does that Facebook have to do with a VR headset? What are you going to do in Facebook that's going to require a VR headset? Fantastic question. I'm glad you asked. Uh, this is the question that Mark Zuckerberg answered about a year ago in full with a big presentation about Meta. They, were, they rebranded the company um, also in part because Facebook was facing a whole bunch of uh, political pressure um, based on like misinformation, political influence, stuff like that. So they what they want is to create this metaverse and we could dive deep so deep into into this because it is such an such a idea and we t uh, on this show about 2 months ago now we talked our first episode we talked about Ready Player 1 and we talked about how Mark Zuckerberg saw this VR metropolis where basically anything can happen and you can be anyone and do anything at any time uh kind of seemed to inspire him to do all of this nonsense uh, essentially so you will acquire a horizon quest because they they dropped the oculus and uh rebranded it as horizon and uh, you slap on this headset and for the most part i believe they're all they're, they're all you don't need a computer powering it it's all within self-contained and unlike unlike the original vr headsets of uh about a decade ago, the early teens, not the ones of the nineties. Those were very different, but the ones that are early teens where you're piping it, you have a big cord coming out of it and then the computer's doing all the rendering. But the whole point of the metaverse is that it's an entirely other place that is virtual. You're just going to put on your headset. You're going to exist in this place. You're going to do everything through this place. So you're going to go to work in the metaverse. You're going to shop in the metaverse. And it's this early idea. This it's got a real like early '90s vibe. There were some really tragically bad um, kind of cyberpunk sci-fi movies. You think Lawnmower Man, Johnny Mnemonic, um, a couple other just really bad. But it was the idea of we could take what's really easy and stuff now and convert it into something that's a lot more complex and skeuomorphic. And when I when I mentioned that, I'm talking about. Like in the early 90s, they used to have uh, digital interfaces that were skeuomorphic. And skeuomorphic basically means that it's reflecting what it's supposed to actually be. So if you have a notepad app, it looks like an actual notepad. And it's got like lines on it that are college ruled or whatever uh, to indicate, yeah, this is what a notepad. If you open up a notepad app or a writing app on your phone now, it's just it's going to be a blank field. And you're just going to type in words. And it just looks like it may have a paper uh, a paper outline on it to indicate the space, but it's not, it doesn't look like that. And that like early iPhone, uh, skeuomor Scott Forstall was a huge fan of skeuomorphic UI. And so now imagine, okay, so let's abstract that an extra layer, right? You're in the metaverse. So instead of just pressing a button to, you know, access an app, you actually travel to a place and do it. In a, in a virtual environment. 
And the idea is, is that you would have, you know, a virtual desktop. Meta just showed off a $1,500 headset that they're trying to sell to, I guess, casual people or enterprise or what have you to try and convince them that they need to join this virtual metaverse place. And apparently from Meta themselves, uh, it's been leaked out that no one internally is using their metaverse stuff. Um, no one is understanding why they would do that. And, uh, even Xbox's Phil Spencer, he's the, the CEO of Microsoft gaming and came up through the, uh, Microsoft chain of command there. He basically said that it's like a poorly designed video game. There have been games. There have been other things that represent what meta is trying to do now and did it decades ago. VR chat. You know, you're, you've got a VR headset and you're talking to people in a room. They, it's been done before, right? Uh, there are games like Second Life, which was a big deal, you know, some time ago. You'd, you'd have companies coming in and buying virtual real estate and setting up stores where people could buy stuff through this venue where you could be, you know, a flying piece of bacon or something. Uh, or worse, just some really creepy stuff on there. But I'm not trying to judge that. In particular, I haven't used it, but Second Life was this, but 20, 25 years ago. And uh, so Meta is trying to rehash what everyone else had already tried and kind of failed on. And there have been just kerfuffle after kerfuffle um, in showing off what Meta is or what Meta, what they want Meta to be, right? And some of them like, they showed one graphic and it's just a very plain looking Zuckerberg. Um, the graphics look like something out of a PS2 game uh, in front of like an Eiffel Tower. It's really strange. This, this entire meta thing has just been really weird. Uh, in this recent presentation, they decided that they added legs. That they're, I guess they're going to simulate through something. Uh, because since you're sitting in a place and you do have controllers to mimic your arms and fingers and stuff like that by pressing buttons... You don't have anything to emulate what your legs are doing. Now, in this presentation, apparently the whole thing was faked visually. It was a, just, a, I guess, a concept of what they could have done or what it will eventually look like. But it's disheartening. It's weird. The entire thing around Meta is strange. And there, there, there is a, just a growing crowd of people who are like, yeah, man, keep going, keep going, and just kind of waiting for – either for him to give up, for the company to collapse, uh, especially since it did not have a glowing reputation ahead of time anyway. And uh, people just like, just wanting him to give up. Like either way, it's, it seems like a win-win that Meta is having so many troubles trying to execute on this extremely bizarre vision that Mark Zuckerberg has for the world. And it seems like we're now kind of in this weird moment where the big tech companies are having struggles, having a vision, having a vision that's relevant. And it goes to, um, you know, back to the Elon Musk billionaire thing. It's the idea that people have so much money. They have access to so many resources that they can then start building these entirely irrelevant structures, companies, things that don't really matter or help anyone in the slightest, 
but it's something that they've needed to get out of their head. And th there's a reason why we pay taxes, right? The taxes are supposed to be for the communal good of everyone. Like we're buying, paying for roads, we're doing this, we're establishing the welfare, you know, the, the domestic, you know, the, the, the common defense, et cetera, you know, as you read in the preamble of the Constitution. And when you have these people who have suckered away and scrounged away so much of everyone's money into their own pockets, they start working on these pet projects that they think will help people, they think will make the world better, that end up just kind of being these vanity things that really are just informed by little more than imagination. And that is, it's so sad to see that people have these many resources when so many people are just trying to eat. <laughs> They're just trying to get by, especially with, you know, even before inflation, even before inflation, just fighting for fair wages and stuff like that. That's a whole other thing. But to see Meta kind of burning away so much of their shareholder value, to see people like, and Meta is structured in such a way, and this was kind of a key point from um, the Facebook effect, the the book by David Kirkpatrick. Uh, he had written a book about Facebook in 2010, um, which then also came out around time as the Accidental Billionaires by uh, Ben uh, Mesnick. I think so. Accidental. That's the book that Ben Mesrick, yeah. He uh, and this was him following the the story of uh, Eduardo Saverin. This was the Accidental Billionaires is the book that informed the Social Network by David Fincher, and uh, it's pretty. It's interesting to see that Peter Thiel, who was kind of like the one of the first round advisors of Facebook, basically helped him Zuckerberg form this corporation, go public with this corporation a few a number of years later, it was like 2012, and say that Facebook is unilaterally owned and controlled by Mark Zuckerberg. It's just the way that they structured it, it's the way that it came about. And no one can tell Mark Zuckerberg that he's wrong. No one can argue with him. He, I mean, technically they can, right? But ultimately no one has any power to tell him no. Any other company, they could be like, Oh, we're kicking out, you know, think Steve Jobs, you know, in 1985 uh, when the board kicked him off and replaced him with uh, Bruce Shelley. Uh, you, you think about those times and you think of that time kind of control where the shareholders, the chair, the board come in and say, no, you can't have that. Meta doesn't have that. So it can just be Mark Zuckerberg's pipe dream until it all burns away and all those tens of thousand employees, you know, worst case scenario, you know, lose their jobs or, or whatever. And this is coming as other companies like Google slash Alphabet are trying to tighten their belts around personnel and expenditures and stuff like that, which doesn't make much of any sense when you consider that these companies are so insanely profitable. So uh, Meta, uh, if you have a Horizon Quest or an Oculus Quest headset, I hope you're enjoying it. Obviously, don't let me poo-poo your enjoyment of that. But uh, if you have not sunk into this, my goodness... Hold your horses. <laughs> oh, whew, what, a, what a roller coaster. All right, let's move on to our next story. Let me make sure that's lined up there. 
Yeah, here we go. We're going to talk about Hard Space Shipbreaker. I, re- I uh, recommended this in her event, this past week's Event Horizon as well. Um, if you, if you, so Event Horizon is a page and a half. It's in the uh, Color Springs Independent, of course, the publication that you read every single week. It's your favorite one. Uh, it's uh, the page one is uh, a story about you know a local event, local art scene, local things going on um, that you may not have heard of um, that you can then participate in or, or watch or. Uh, go see or whatever. Uh, and then on the second page, we do a roundup where we um, ask the staff internally, Hey, what you've been playing, reading, listening, watching, etc. Um, and do you have some recommendations? Now, hard spaceship breaker is a, is my recommendation this week. It's an incredible game. I've been playing it for years uh, at this point. It was an early access for the longest time. You can get it on Xbox, PlayStation five. It's on game pass. So if you have the Xbox, so you can just download it. And what it is, is it's a first-person space-based spaceship salvage game. And uh, you can – you're basically carving ships – these derelict, abandoned sh- spaceships, carving them apart and take sorting their disparate elements, some of which are like welded together, um, and s- salvaging them into different pools uh, essentially. So – uh, you'll have nanocarbon. Sh- you'll have nanocarbon shells which go into one collector. You'll have a bunch of just raw metal and aluminum that can go into a furnace. And then all you'll have computers, flight decks, chairs, stuff that can be recycled. Essentially, those go into a uh, barge. And the way it's set up is that you're in. You, the player, are signing up to go into space. This is your ticket to outer space and to worlds beyond. And you're. To pay off this this debt, this incredible debt that you accumulate in getting into space on the Lynx Corporation's ticket, you're having to scrap these ships, and you um, you're more or less profitable, uh, you, or you can be profitable if you salvage right. You can make money because you're going to buy things like oxygen and fuel so that you get around. Um, you're gonna. You're going to have expenditures week to week. The more time that you spend on a spaceship, the more it'll cost to do because you have to then spend all the extra fees uh, to get things going over and over again. So ideally, you kind of come up with a pattern with these with this variety of ships um, that you can get them done the quickest way possible. Now, these are kind of – there's a puzzle element to this as well. I mean you can go through and just carve through stuff all you want. Uh, but that's not very efficient. What you want to do is you'll start out with uncompressed spaceships and you can just go in and start cutting away the weld points. They're like bright yellow and black hazard uh, looking things. And uh, at that point, the ships can start to separate uh, bit by bit. They're kind of grid based. Uh, they're kind of cube based, I guess. Uh, well, same thing, whatever. Grids or squares or cubes, whatever. You know what I mean? And you can take these different bits and, again, you sort them out. You send them into different things. It's all Newtonian physics. So you have a momentum to you. You have to break. You risk climbing into – flying into one of the furnaces yourself. (laughs) Uh, It's entirely – it's it's very – the physics are intense because it's it's calculating so many things. Now, as you work up the ladder – as you start building up your reputation, well, not reputation, but your skills and certification, because you go up a ladder, um, 
you start getting things like compressed ships. So there's still a pocket of air inside. And if you randomly um, just decided to saw through the exterior of a vessel wherever you can, you risk explosive um, decom decompression. There we go. Explosive decompression. Yeah. And then the ship can start flying off into space uh, by physics alone. Uh, There are also fusion reactors and stuff that you'll have to take out. And they, they, once you deactivate them from their nest, their apparatus, uh, it begins a meltdown countdown. And if you don't get them into the barge in the right time, they will blow up and they will shred um, whatever's around them, including you. You can die. You can very easily die uh, in this game. In fact, uh, there's a cool challenge mode. You have to get a, a little bit into the game first before you unlock it, where you get one life from beginning to end. So if you die, that's the end of – it's permadeath. Uh, it People have um, – Cited its repetition, it can get repetitive after a bit. I mean, it's it's a slog of it. I I kind of forgive it for that because it's supposed to be this tedious slog of a thing. There's a plot line uh, where you're working with your fellow welders, even though you operate alone entirely, but you hear them over comms. Um, so it's kind of, it's got kind of a radio play like Titanfall one kind of aspect to it, but um, it's. The, the there's an ultimate goal where you're starting to unionize essentially and work together so that you can guess help each other out. And I haven't gotten that far. I'm playing on Xbox series S. It does a weird thing where it crashes after each shift from the second act on. Apparently the developers are aware of it, um, but there has not been a fix as of the time that I'm recording this, but it is, it is a game where it, like the tedium of like starting a new ship, starting a new ship kind of helps because the actual act of tearing these ships down is really fun. Um, like I just find incredible excitement of having to puzzle out how you take apart a ship um, without destroying it, without killing yourself, uh, without running out of supplies or whatever. And you're you're really trying to like that, that part's just really fun. That part's really fun to me. So uh, I would highly recommend it. Um, if you have game pass, I don't know why you wouldn't have game pass if you're not like on windows or if you're, if you have an Xbox, cause like, that's a huge thing. Um, and I'm not getting paid to say that. I gotta say that. I, I have to, I have to say that I'm not being paid to say that. Uh, if you have game pass, go try it out. Uh, definitely, definitely worth a look. It's a, oh, it's a, it's definitely, uh, um, overlooked game. And uh, I would absolutely recommend you try it out. Um, it's super fun. I love it. All right. Um, I guess the last story I want to talk about today, and I don't know how much I really want to dive into this. Um, I may save that for for next episode. But um, yay, formerly Kanye West, yay West. Um, was dropped by Adidas this past week. Um, and this was a big deal because they've been in collaboration for a decade now. He has his Yeezy line of uh, apparel, shoes, etc. Does like a billion dollars plus a year. I'm looking at Vox.com here. And after some 
really atrocious anti-Semitic things that he said, Adidas was like, nope, nope, ain't doing it. And <sighs> FD Signifier, he's a video essayist on YouTube. Uh, he really dives into um, Kanye West and kind of his decline. Um, I'm, I didn't get into Ye's music until basically my beautiful tar- twisted fantasy, beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy, um, which is a beautiful album. And, um, but I really liked Yeezus, um, the 2013 disc featuring stuff that wound up on Django Unchained, Tarantino's flick, uh, including like black skinhead, uh, Ye- Yeezus is I really enjoy that disc. And, um, but I have not in the year since as he's uh, after his mom died, um, he, and he's been experiencing mental health issues related to bipolar, um, mania, potentially psychosis and that he is increasingly, um, hitched on to right-wing conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism and just this and that, just truly ragged, nasty, hateful stuff. Um, and this is, this is not new. Again, he's been, there's been a number of videos, like when he went to TMZ, um, the, the parts when he hosted SNL at one point, or he was the guest performer on SNL and he, they, there was a leaked, um, video about s- some stuff that he said after that, after a uh, taping of a show. And again, Yeezy, Elon Musk, I mean, this is the theme of the episode is just the billionaires club. I think that's just going to be the title. Um, you have these people who are not accountable to anyone. Like after this whole, he was actually escorted out, I believe it was yesterday from Skechers. He showed up un unannounced to Skechers headquarters looking to do another shoe deal because he was making so much money off Adidas. Uh, and of course that's changed, you know, that's affecting the aftermarket, you know, the third, the second hand market on, on Yeezus shoes and stuff like that. And so you have these people who are not held accountable to anyone. They're doing whatever they want. And it's, I don't want to rehash myself. I've already kind of gone down this road this episode, but it's sad. It's sad. It is what it is. And when when people, so many people don't have a say at all to then have these people who have more say than anyone else exponentially, far more than anyone else. I mean, we only have 24 hours in our day, right? What What sort of glorifies this kind of discrepancy in that kind of power to say that to just, I'm going to drop $44 billion and buy Twitter. Or I'm going to take this entire company that's worth nearly a trillion dollars and steer it towards um, this this virtual reality dream that I have. Or in the case of Kanye West, doing just having a mental health breakdown and no one's calling him out on it. No one's saying like, hey, you need a conservatorship. Like you look at the Britney Spears, Amanda Bynes, countless other people celebrities even, where as soon as they start showing issues with mental health and that, uh, some family member, whoever is swinging in and saying, yo, we're going to take control of everything. No one's doing that for Kanye. No one's doing that for Ye. Um, 
I want to talk about this more in the future um, because this is something that is really this it's it's so much more in depth and um, it'll be interesting to see how this comes about and what happens to yay um, especially like and the, the whole like the whole thing with his oh my gosh like the the whole thing with him and and his now ex-wife Kim Kardashian and the whole Pete Davidson thing and him and Ye buying a house across like there's no uh, yeah I don't have anything more for that well this has been the show uh, I hope you enjoyed it uh, this has been Hot Takes and Streaming Breaks episode number three The Billionaires Club um, this was uh, produced directed and hosted by moi Nick Raven um, this is getting done every other week uh, this was Usually Kelly's in here. I'll have some guests. I'm looking to get some some people in here as well. But it's like I need to I need to get I I really got to get um, hot takes going. And so we're here's here's a new episode for you. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe. Um, well, I don't, there's not going to be a video version of this one, but uh, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, etc. We have the other version. We have video versions of the other two shows on YouTube, but you can like and subscribe those. There you go. Like and subscribe on those other two episodes. So fantastic. Uh, you guys have a great week. I hope you guys voted. This is early enough that I hope you guys voted. Get your votes in. You got those ballots, hopefully. You registered to vote. You got those ballots. Send those in. There's mailboxes everywhere. Um, you can get them in. You can apply. You can send postage with it. You can get it done. Um, so until next time, Peace.